Well, it's great to see you here this evening. Uh, we've, uh, in the midst of a two-day conference uh, for uh, elders and leaders in advanced churches in South Africa, uh, in Dar es Salaam and uh, Nairobi and Madagascar coming together, uh, and some friends uh, from the States. And over these two days, we've been uh, looking at the theme of confidence. We've looked at uh, confidence in the Word, confidence in the church, confidence in mission. And uh, this evening, we want to look at confidence in the God of the future. So if you've got your Bibles, could you please turn to Jeremiah 29 and verse 1. Jeremiah 29 and verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders amongst the exiles and the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then drop down to verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams uh, you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promises to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come to me and pray to me. And I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back from captivity. I will... Gather you from all the nations and places I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I have carried you into exile. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray as we come to your word this evening. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us and you would instruct us. Lord, I pray that corporately uh, we would grow in our confidence in you. And Lord, that we would see you clearly this evening as the God of the future. And all God's people said, I want to look at this passage uh, this evening under three headings, Babylon, South Africa, and advance. Babylon, South Africa, and advance. Jeremiah 29, 11 is one of the most quoted and least understood verses in the whole Bible. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. This verse alone has made so much money for Christian sticker makers, calendar makers, magnet makers over the years. It's just such a well-known verse, but sadly, it is really misunderstood. 
People love this verse because they think, this is brilliant. God's got plans to bless me, to give me a hope and a future. But if they, if they knew the context of the plans that God had for the people that he originally gave it to, they wouldn't be so excited. They wouldn't be putting it on their car or, or their fridge um, or, or celebrating it in the way that they do. Because what were the plans that God had for these people? Well, the plan was this, get kidnapped have your house and city destroyed, live in exile, serving your arch enemy while you pray for their peace and prosperity. That, that was the plan. And you're going, you're kidding, right, God? That, that's not the plan. Surely that can't be the plan. I, I know you, Jeremiah, and you, you're not Noah. You're not Trevor Noah. But please tell me that this is a joke. Tell me that this is some kind of sick joke and you're just really kidding. And we're just going to go back to Jerusalem and everything's going to be fine. Please tell me this is a joke. But, but friends, this was no joke. The, these were dark and difficult days for the people of God. The people of God were backslidden and divided. The northern kingdom had been defeated by the Assyrians years earlier, and now the southern kingdom of Judah had been overpowered by the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar. The overthrow of the southern kingdom of Judah happened in three key invasions in 506 BC, 597 BC, and then the final fall. Uh, of the southern kingdom in 586 BC. This overthrow, this final overthrow was brutal. You can read about it in 2 Kings 25. 2 Kings 25 tells us that the king of Judah, Zedekiah, had to watch as his sons were slaughtered before him. Having seen his sons slaughtered, they then ripped out his eyeballs. They wanted the last thing that the king saw to be his own children being slaughtered in front of him, and then they frog-marched him to Babylon. The people of God had to not just simply deal with the physical brutality that involved the overthrow by the Babylonians, but they had to deal with the spiritual brutality as well. You see, Judah was in the promised land. And in the promised land was Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem was the temple, and in the temple were all the significant articles inside it. In 2 Kings 25, 9 and 10, we are told that fire was set to the temple, the royal palaces, and every important city in the, bull, in the city was burnt down. The temple was ransacked and everything of value was stolen. The walls of Jerusalem were utterly destroyed. Friends, it's, it's, it's really uh, impossible to exaggerate the trauma of the events that unfolded with the overthrow of Jerusalem. Everything of value to these people, be it physical, emotional, or spiritual, had been ripped away from them. In fact, Psalm 137 kind of gives us a window into the torment of their soul, the sadness in the hearts of these now prisoners of war. But by the river of Babylon, we, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for a song. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, 
Sing us one of those songs of Zion. The captors are mocking them. Come on, sing us one of your worship songs. Are you going to rejoice in the Lord of your salvation now? Sing us one of those songs. How can we sing the song of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. And so folks, here in Psalm 137, we find deep sadness. In this psalm, we we find great lament. In in this psalm, we find a broken people. Derek Kidner says that every line of the psalm is alive with pain. Every line of the psalm is alive with pain. The people are broken. They are raw. They are filled with lament. But what we discover from reading Jeremiah 29 is that behind all these difficult uh, upheavals and traumatic event is a very unlikely source. Because what we discover as we read Jeremiah 29 is that behind all these, uh, these perplexing and difficult and traumatic events is actually a loving God. What, tra- what transpired in Jerusalem wasn't the random events of a wicked ruler, but rather the inevitable consequences for a people who persistently rejected the leading and warning of God. You see, the people of God had turned their back on God. They had become a people who were fully into idol worship and living as if the Almighty didn't exist. They had rejected God, the God who had saved and rescued them radically and supernaturally from Egypt, the God who had miraculously provided for them in the desert, and the God who had had brought them into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. That God had become a God who was surplus to requirements. And through the prophetic voice of Jeremiah and others, God begins to call back the people of God. He calls them to turn from their wicked ways and to begin to trust them. They ignore these warnings. And God says that if you don't turn back, there will be inevitable destruction that will await you. But all this wooing and warning was to no avail. God's words had fallen on deaf ears, and the people of God had to learn the hard way. Persistent rebellion against God will not go unpunished. You may be sitting here this evening thinking, what a joke. I'm here at the leaders' event at Advance. It's so great. (laughs) If only people really knew what I was up to. Friends, God knows what you're up to. And if you are in persistent rebellion against God, God will judge you. Those who sow to the flesh, from the flesh, will reap destruction. But what we amazingly discover here in Jeremiah 29 is not just the inevitability of God's judgment for a rebellious people, but even when God is correcting, He is actually redeeming. God's correction has a redemptive purpose. God's plans wasn't to crush but redeem. God's plan wasn't to humiliate but to bring about spiritual renewal of his people. His intention wasn't to erase but to restore. 
And the issue at play in Jeremiah 29 is actually the timing of this redemption, this renewal, and this restoration. That what was in dispute. There were prophetic people that were being raised up and saying, hey, don't, don't worry. God just gave us a fright. You know, it's just a bit of a shock. This is a bit of shock tactics from God. You know, the temple came down, but, but just chillax. It's going to be fine. We're going to return to Jerusalem. We're going to rebuild. Everything's going to be okay. And there were these prophets that were being raised up. But God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah and said, actually, those are false prophets. They're just prophesying what you want to hear. Here's the deal, guys. This isn't going to be a short exile. You're going to be in Babylon for at least 70 years. And I've got some instructions for you. This isn't going to be a short stay. This is basically going to be your lifetime. If you're 20 years old and God says you're going to be in this place for 70 years, this is going to be your lifetime. You're going to be in the wicked city of Babylon. And in Jeremiah 29, God says at least five things to the people of God that are just worth us logging Uh, this evening. The first thing he does is he calls them to the city. God shocks them by calling them to engage the city. So prophets were emerging to say, no, 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 we're going to return to Jerusalem. Others were saying, no, 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 we just need to kind of be a refugee community. We must stay on the outskirts of Babylon. We mustn't enter the wicked city. But God says, no, 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 you are to engage the city. In fact, more than that, God says, I'm the one that brought you here. Notice it's, it's, it's uh, in, in the opening verses, it's King Nebuchadnezzar who brings them to Babylon. But when God speaks, he says, I'm the one that has brought you here. And he calls them to engage the city. He says, you mustn't retreat from the city. You mustn't return to Jerusalem. You mustn't be a refugee community outside the city. No, 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 no. You are to enter the city. So firstly, there's this call to enter the city. Secondly, there's a call to build. You are to build homes. You are to plant gardens. You are to eat what they uh, produce you, you are to build your life here. Now, friends, in the context of what God tells them in the whole prophecy, this is really staggering. Because God says, I want you to go to Babylon for 70 years. And during your 70-year period, I want you to build homes. I want you to plant trees. I, I want you to plant crops that are going to produce a harvest. I want you to do all of this. And if you do everything I tell you, then I'm going to bring you back to Jerusalem. If you're part of the people of God, and you hear God's instructions, it doesn't take you long to, are you telling me that I'm to give my life to build the city of my arch enemy? How many people know that in 70 years time, when they decide to pack up and to go back to Jerusalem, they're not going to get a good deal on their house? The Babylonians aren't going to get into a whole bidding frenzy to buy their house. Oh, no, 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 no. These guys are leaving en masse, and we're just going to walk in, and we, we, we are going to pick without pain. Thank you very much. We, we're just going to take over your homes and your crops and your plants. Thank you very much. God is calling them to build into a place so that their arch enemy's grandchildren will have really awesome homes and really awesome crops. God is calling them to build into a city that their grandchildren won't even live in. The next thing that God says to them is, hey guys, you need to nurture the next generation. Because you see, whenever we're in trauma, the thing that we think about in the midst of trauma is ourselves. 
Our whole horizon becomes about ourselves, and, and Jerusalem has just fallen mega traumatic. They've got to move to wicked Babylon, mega traumatic, and they're just in the midst of the trauma, and they're just thinking about their lives and all the implications. And, and God says to them, hey, guys, 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 just heads up here. You, you, you're to give your, your kids in marriage. They're, they're going to have children. You are to increase here. Because guess what? My plans and purposes isn't just about this generation. It's not just about you. I've got ongoing plans and purposes. And those ongoing plans and purposes are about the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. And if you make my plans all about your generation, you're going to profoundly miss my plans and my purposes for you. Who came in the generation, 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 generation to come? Who eventually pops out? Jesus pops out. The people of God cannot afford to pull the fire alarm and just ignore the next generation and just make the whole of world history all about themselves. God is saying, you need to to increase in number. You cannot decrease. I've got plans and purposes, which isn't just about you. My plans involve multiple generations. You dare not decrease there. You must increase. And then God says something really interesting. If you track with Jeremiah 29, he calls them to pray. He calls them to pray and to seek him with all their heart. If you read Jeremiah 29, it's surprising because this chapter is evidence of God's absolute sovereignty over human history. So we get the description of what King Nebuchadnezzar does, but when God speaks, he says, I've done this. It shows that even when a wicked ruler acts in a way that we think is independent and inappropriate, God says, I trump you, I'm ahead of you, you were just doing what I wanted you to do. And so when you see the absolute sovereignty of God, you can say, well, if God's in control of everything, then we don't need to do anything, right? And God says, wrong. Essentially, God says in Jeremiah 29, I'm not a hyper-Calvinist. You need to pray. You need to actually get involved in this. This idea that I'm just sovereign and therefore you can kick back and do nothing is just not biblical. You need to engage me because actually I'm after your heart. I want a relationship with you. I want you to pray to me. I want you to call out to me. I want you to to seek me with all your heart, says the Lord. I don't want you to disengage. I don't want you to think, well, oh, well, God's in control. Therefore, I can just do whatever I want. No, 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 no. You you need to pray, and you need to see God, and you need to trust Him. And because He's sovereign, and because He's in control, we pray, and we cry out, and we anticipate breakthrough. And we don't just pray with a little. We seek Him not just with a part of our heart. We seek Him with all of our heart. We, We put all our eggs into one basket. God, we trust you. God, we're sorry that we've just done our own things our own way. Lord, forgive us our idolatries. We We come back to you. We trust you for the future. If you say build, we build. If you call us to invest in the next generation, we'll invest in the next generation. So God calls them to pray. And firstly, he calls them to take a step forward. God will not allow the people of God just to stand still. That is not an option. It's not an option to stand still. God calls them to take a step forward. You need to move forward. You need to move into the city. You dare not stand still. So firstly, Babylon. Secondly, South Africa. Firstly, Babylon. Secondly, South Africa. Now, I just want to make two kind of caveats before we try and apply this text to South Africa. 
The first thing that's just worth noting is God is no longer working in geopolitical state. The place that we find ourselves uh, in salvation history is the point where God no longer works with geopolitical states. God used to do that with the people of Israel, but the place that we find ourselves in salvation history is God is working with the people of God. That, 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 that is the people that he is working with, and therefore, we would make a huge mistake to make the state of any geopolitical country the barometer for God's faithfulness, because countries come and go. Just read the last 50 years of human history, and there are certain countries that no longer exist, other countries that have just birthed and come into being. Countries come and go. And friends, we would make a huge mistake to tag the faithfulness of God to the, to the particular geopolitical country that we're in. That, that is a mistake. God is faithful to his people, but South Africa, as we know, it could change. In 50 years' time, this could be South China, for all we know. So, so the, idea that, the idea that God is married to the geopolitical state of South Africa or the United Kingdom or the United States of America is a erroneous, is a misapplication of Scripture. It, it's people taking Old Testament promises made to Israel and then copying and pasting that onto their geopolitical state. So first thing, God's not working with geopolitical states anymore. Secondly, God is on a global mission. God is on a global mission to make his name famous to the very ends of the earth. So what I'm about to say isn't code for like, if you're really committed to God, then you stay in South Africa. That's the badge of righteousness. Anybody who goes anywhere else, well, you know, if only they really trusted God. No, no, no. That I, I've seen that in context where countries struggle. They make it a righteousness issue about staying, and, and it's just silly because God can send people wherever he wants because he is the God of the nations. So with those caveats uh, in place, let's apply what we learned from Jeremiah 29 to our context in South Africa today. The big idea from Jeremiah 29 is this. God is sovereign and in control and can be fully trusted. The big idea is God is sovereign and in control and can be fully trusted. And because that is true, there are some important implications for the way we live out our Christian faith in the geopolitical state of South Africa. The first thing is we need to believe God. If God is sovereign and in control and can be fully trusted, we must believe God. There isn't room when you believe in a sovereign Lord who is at work to throw up your hands and to disengage. The story of Jeremiah 29 is that God is at work even in the most difficult of situations. Even when a situation seems terrible and dark and have no redemptive end, actually there is a redemptive end because God is sovereign and in control and can be fully trusted. God is at work and because he is at work, we cannot disengage. We cannot pull the plug and just think, throw up our hands and say, I can't believe what's happening. And friends, when we read the Bible, we discover time and time again that the moment when the picture looks as dark as it possibly could be is the exact point when God breaks in. We see this narrative time and time again. Think of Abraham and Sarah trying to con conceive. Think about 
overcoming the Jericho walls or Joseph in the pit or David facing Goliath or the flooded Jordan and the Red Sea or Jesus in the tomb. Time and time again, when the picture looks as bleak as possible, it's, it's just before God is going to break in in amazing, impossible ways. And friends, because we worship the God who is sovereign and in control and can be fully trusted, we can always anticipate that no matter how dark the situation may seem, God is at work. God is at work. Our hope isn't rooted in our circumstances. Our our hope isn't rooted in the state of the nation. Our hope is rooted in a God who is sovereign and at work. The second thing that Jeremiah 29 teaches us for South Africa is that we must build and not break down. Now, let me just say, before I get into this point, I'm not trying to say that there is no place for legitimate protest. There definitely is a place for legitimate protest. But, friends, I think it's fair to say that living in South Africa at the moment is to really to live in the midst of an avalanche of disapproval. It doesn't matter who you talk to or what their political persuasions are, everybody is really upset. Everybody is really disappointed. Everybody is really angry. And everybody knows what the problem is. And the problem is somebody else. Everybody knows that somebody else needs to fall, and only if that thing fell, then we would be fine. So everybody's angry, everybody knows what the problem is, everybody knows the problem is somebody else and that somebody else has got to fall, but the only thing that is falling is the rand. I don't know if you've picked that up yet. I don't know if, if, if you've worked that one out, but everybody knows that it's somebody else's problem. But friends, can I just say to you, it's just the easiest thing in the world to point to the problems of others without actually owning our own problems and without being actually trying to build something that will be part of the solution of the country that we live in. Friends, if Christians are reduced to finger pointing, we will profoundly miss the moment that we find ourselves in. I remember Barack Obama's inaugural address on the 21st of January, 2009, when he challenged world leaders by saying the following, your people will judge you on what you can build, not what you can destroy. British monarch uh, Queen Elizabeth II in a Christmas address last year said, it is better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. And friends, there are lots of people cursing their perceived darkness. Everybody knows what the darkness is, what the problem is, and they curse in the darkness. Friends, it's way more challenging to light a candle than to, than to curse the darkness. And if God could say to the people of God, as they entered wicked Babylon, you are to build, and you are to plant, and you are to invest in a future that your grandchildren won't even enjoy, how much more should the Christians in South Africa be giving themselves to being a part of the solution? How much more should Christians be part of solving the problems that our country are facing? Do you need a good news story tonight? We need good news stories in South Africa, don't we? Let me give you a good news story. It's a guy by the name of Murray Gibbon. I played rugby with him uh, at UCT. Um, 
uh, he, he, he did pretty well at um, matric. Uh, he got seven A's. Don't you hate that? You know, like six subjects wasn't enough for him. He had to take a seven subject and get A's for all of those. I just hate people like that. And uh, if at that age I'd got seven A's, I knew what my track would be, um, you know, uh, kind of merchant banking to the glory of God. But uh, he, he wasn't wired like me. Uh, he... he <laughs> He decided he really wanted to give his life to education. Like, seriously, what a waste. And uh, so he, he went to UCD and he studied education. And, and because he was so gifted, I mean, surely he's going to go to one of the top schools. I mean, that's what he's going to do, right? He's going to, he's going to become headmaster of one of these really top schools. And then this idiot, you know what he decides to do? He decides to open up this high school for really underprivileged kids that would focus on maths and science. I mean, how dumb is that? Like, if you want to get some kudos, just open up a school that just, like, educates kids generally. I mean, like, we all know that people from underprivileged backgrounds really struggle with maths and science. So that's, like, the last thing you want to do. I mean, that's, like, the dumbest thing you did. And, like, for a guy who got seven A's, it's, like, incredibly dumb that he's going to do that. And they just, like, they added a standard a year. So started grade eight, and then the next year they had grade eight and nine, and they've just had their first matric class has just graduated. Do you want to know how they did? Check this out. Do you know what the pass rate was? 100%. 100%. Do you, do you, want, to know, do you want to know what uh, uh, what the bachelor pass was? 83%. I wonder how their top pupil did. Where, where did the pop, uh, their, their top pupil came? Their, their top pupil came third in the country. I just checked it out that, that that's better than Bishops and Herschel and St. Stithians and St. John's. They didn't make it into the top five, but some random school we've never heard of the first time they write him a trick, get somebody into the top three, 100% pass rate and 83%. Incredible. And this guy's a believer. He's a believer. It's amazing. We had him before the first matric class. We had him about, I don't know, three years ago. We interviewed him at Jubilee. Uh, we gave a gift to the school. I don't know if it was like 10000 or 20000 And our church loved it, but there's always you get that one person who writes the letter. It's like, why are we giving money to like a government school? You know, we're like there are other good Christian schools in the city. Why, why, aren't, we, why, why aren't we giving to them? And uh, the reason why we didn't give to them, because Christians aren't just about the Christian good. They're about the common good. Christians care about the fact that in 1973, for every one rand that was spent on a black person's education, 17 rand was spent on a white person's education. Some profound, radical, systemic injustices. And surely Christians care about that and actually want to do something, not just for the Christian good, but for the common good. Friends, what happens if across our churches, Christians were just lighting a candle, just doing what they could do to make a difference? What happens if we just like got thousands of little candles? Not all of us get seven A's and start a high school, but all of us can do our little thing to light our little candle to make a difference for the glory of God and for the common good. Friends, can I call us to be those that build and not break down? The third thing that we see in this passage is that there is an imperative for the next generation. God is concerned for the next generation, and we desperately need to be concerned for the next generation in this country. 50% of the South African population is under the age of 25. That's just off the charts. To give you an idea of how radical that is, if you go to Denmark or Germany or Italy, 
uh, that portion of the population counts for 18% of the population. In South Africa, it's 50% of the population. The number of young people that we've got in this country are just off the charts. Friends, we need to be those that are investing in the next generation. We need to be front-footed and fully engaged in believing God to make a difference for the next generation. I hope we've worked out that it's not just about us. It's not just about, are we going to get through? No, no, no. It's about the next generation and the next generation. The fourth thing we see here is really a need to pray. A need to pray for lasting transformation and renewal. Because lasting transformation and renewal is only found in God. I don't know if you were Christian in just before 94. I was. I can just remember before that period in our history kind of... Uh, 92 to 94 was just the most incredible time of prayer in the church that I've ever experienced. Churches crying out to God for God to break through and to really spare us. Friends, it's time to pray. If we just did one thing, if we just made one change in our life, if we we prayed more than we criticized, there would be a radical breakthrough in South Africa. If we prayed more than we criticized, we'd see radical breakthrough. And then the final thing that we, we see that's relevant for us in South Africa is that all of us need to take a step towards each other. The last thing that the people, wanted, uh, people of God wanted to do uh, that day as they faced the great city uh, of Babylon was to take a step forward to Babylon. They, they hated the Babylonians. They were the enemy. They, they were the people that had just ransacked their city. That was the last move that they wanted to make. And friends, over the last uh, year to 80 months in South Africa, there has, there has been increased uh, racial hostility. And friends, in a moment of racial hostility, the natural response of everybody is just to remove back into their little tribe where they feel safe and secure and not to engage with people that now become the enemy. But friends, God won't allow us to do that. God will not allow us to retreat back into our little tribes. God is calling us to take a step towards each other. And friends, this isn't like a South African thing. This is God's redemptive purposes to the ends of the earth thing. Because we know that in the ends of the earth, there are people from every tribe and language and nation and people. So if you don't like people that are different to you, heads up, you're going to hate heaven. You are really going to hate heaven if you can't stand people that are different to you. Because heaven is made up of people from every tribe and language and nation and people. And friends, Christians at this point in our nation's history, need to be the first people that are taking the step forward. We need to be the first people that are crossing the racial divide uh, in order to listen and care and express concern for others. We need to be taking the initiative. We need to be moving forward, and we dare not be taking a step back. Firstly, Babylon. Secondly, South Africa. Thirdly, advance. What has Jeremiah got to teach us uh, as a movement at this point? Let me suggest five things for you. Firstly, I believe that there is a call, not an exclusive call, but an important part of our call. There is a call for us to impact the great cities of the world. I believe God has called us to impact the great cities of the world world because the great story that is currently being written in our generation is an enormous migration of people from the rural into the cities. And I'm just going to show you a short video to help us understand uh, what's happening in our world today. Our future is an urban future. Right now, more people live in cities than any other time in human history. 
In the year 1800, about 2% of the world's population lived in cities. In the year 1900, about 12%. Today, we're talking about 52%. In about 35 years, in 2050, almost 70% of the world's population will live in cities. Cities shape the world. What happens in cities doesn't stay in cities. What happens in cities goes out and spreads and impacts the broader culture. What happens in Silicon Valley today doesn't just affect the Bay Area or Northern California, but it affects our entire world. This provides an amazing strategic missiological vision for churches and Christians wanting to do ministry in urban centers. People tend to adopt one of two approaches to the city. Some people retreat from the city. They don't want to go into it or get near to it while other people tend to use the city. They come to the city just to try to make their name great, just to make use of the city's resources, and then move on after a few years. The Bible calls Christians to relate to the city in an uncommon way, to engage the city, to love the city, to put deep roots down in the city. We are living in a very special moment in history. Our moment in history is very, very similar to what happened in the early church 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, God built his church through cities where most of the people lived. God took the gospel through his apostles to cities, to, to Ephesus, to Rome, to Corinth, to Athens. And as the gospel was preached and disciples were made and churches were planted in these cities, as people did their ordinary Christian lives, these cities were changed and the surrounding regions were changed. Could there possibly be another opportunity for that sort of resurgence of the gospel influencing our world and our cities? My prayer, my hope is that that moment will come for us. Now is the time for Christians to take note of what's happening. Now is the time for Christians to understand this unique moment and to seize it, to love and engage their neighbor there, and to see their city changed for the glory of God, for the good of this whole world. Did you just log like two amazing facts there? In 250 years, the urban population is going to go from 2% to 70% in a 250-year period. That is incredible. Second point, the last time that 70% of people lived in urban centers was when the Church of Jesus Christ was birthed. The context in which God decided to send Jesus and where the context in which the church spread like wildfire was the same kind of demographics that we are moving into. And I just get goosebumps when Stephen Um from Boston says, could this be our moment? Could, could this be the moment where it really cracks open, where there's such a density of people together that the, the gospel explodes and just connects into hundreds and thousands and millions of people. And friends, we are called to the city because our future is an urban future. Now, that doesn't mean we're not working in rural contexts. We've got guys that are writing uh, church planting manuals for folk uh, in uh, rural contexts. We've got Donnie Griggs in North Carolina is about to bring out a book about reaching the small town. So we're about everywhere, but we are about cities. And God, in this uh, brotherhood and this partnership of advanced is connecting churches together. So in just a short period of time, we've got churches in Cape Town and Port Elizabeth and East London and Durban and Joburg and Dar es Salaam and Nairobi and London and LA and Houston 
uh, and, and churches looking in, in in D.C. and Singapore and Sydney and Adelaide. There, there's an ecosystem that God is bringing together for his great, grand, global purposes. So for us, there's a call to cities that we need to embrace and be excited about. The second thing is that there's a call to build. Friends, we are called as churches to build something to the glory of God, which means there is a requirement on all of us to truly step up and take fresh responsibilities for the evangelization of the world in our generation. Friends, Advance isn't a club for local churches just to become a little bit better. That isn't what we're about. We're not a club that gather together to try and make our local churches just a little bit better. We want your local church to be a lot better, but we want your local church caught up on a global mission of making Jesus' name famous. And that requires building, that requires labor, that requires work, which you may not even enjoy. We may just be teeing up the next generation. There is a call to build. Thirdly, there's a call to uh, responsible cultural engagement. John Stott says it's comparatively easy to be faithful if we don't care about being contemporary. And it's easy to be contemporary if we're not bothered to be faithful. It is the search for the combination of truth and relevance which is exacting. Just as God called the people of God in Jeremiah 29 to enter the city but not to lose their unique God-fearing distinctive, so the call for us is to plant churches that are culturally relevant, know how to contextualize without being unfaithful. We need to reach out without selling out. We need to be in the world, but not of the world. We need to be faithful and relevant at the same time. Fourthly, there's a call for us to invest in the next generation. We, we, we need to be local churches that are front-footed about investing in the next generation. One of the things why I, I really got involved in, in advance was I, I, I didn't want my kids to have Jubilee Community Church as the only horizon that they had in their life. I wanted to be a part of a partnership of churches working together where my children could be deployed in God's purposes, where there was, was genuine relationship and shared values. Friends, we need to be those that are dreaming about the future. And we need to be those that are dreaming about the next generation, nurturing them to become radical Christ followers to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And finally, there's a call to prayer. Finally, there's a call to prayer. Our vision clarity as a partnership of churches is way ahead of our prayer base. What we call to do, how we call to do it, what we believe is way ahead of our prayer base, which is deeply concerning to me. If, if we've thought through stuff at a very deep and strategic level, but we aren't crying out to God to accomplish it, we would be incredibly foolish. Friends, you don't rock into Nairobi and just go, hey, we're here, and not get any backlash. You, you, you don't plant a church in Dar es Salaam where you've got this Christian Muslim uh, uh, arm wrestle going on without backlash. You don't plant churches in all over Joburg without getting a backlash. Friends, we'd be naive to think that we can just do, 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 do without 
crying out to God and acknowledging that unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. I don't know about you, but I I just don't want to spend my whole life working really hard only to find out it was a real waste of time because I didn't cry out to God for him to build because it's only what God builds that's going to last. We can labor hard. We can be super busy, hamsters on the wheel. But if we're not crying out to God, we're wasting our time. It's in vain. I don't want our lives to be in vain. So eldership teams here, just one of the takeaways from this time together, can you just think how you can pray more as a church and not just about yourselves, but how you can build in prayer into your church where we're genuinely praying for each other and we're genuinely praying for the mission that God has called us to. Friends, I am honestly so excited about what the future holds. And I'm excited about the future because I'm excited about the God of the future. And I want to call us as a people to look to God, to trust Him, to be engaged with Him, and to press in to everything that He's got for us. Because when we do that, He will do remarkable things in our day. I'm not going to hand over to PJ, and he's going to lead us in uh, some breaking of bread together.